Well, if you would, grab a Bible, take a Bible and open with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, that's where we will be this evening. So I got to tell you, I'm loving this chapter. I, I've, I've been loving this chapter for a long time. Um, it seems like every time in, in my Bible reading I get around to this, I'm just, it's almost like I'm reading it again for the first time. And uh, it was, I guess, a little over a week ago uh, in one of my Bible reading plans. I was here in 1 Peter again, just working through uh, 1 Peter, the chapters there, and again came to this chapter, and I, I just sensed the Lord again working in me. And uh, it seems, again, like uh, every time I read this, there must be just a whole lot of work to be done in my life, right? So um, we are here in 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, it impacted me, and I'm praying that it would impact you as well. So uh, would you join me one more time? Let's just ask God to bless this time of Bible study. Let's pray. Father, we now open this chapter, 1 Peter chapter 4, and uh, I, I find this to be such a, a, a just relevant chapter for our lives today, timely for us today, Lord. And so I'm praying that your Holy Spirit, your living word, that it would come alive to us, and, and Lord, that you would do the deep heart surgery that each of us needs in our life. Lord, would you touch? Would, would you communicate? Would you speak to us? Lord, I just want to ask that you would remove any distraction, you would remove any, anything that is, would keep us tonight from thinking deeply about what you would want us to take from this. So we ask, God, that your work and your will be done in us tonight, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First Peter chapter 4. So again, just as I, as I mentioned in prayer, I find this to be just a very timely chapter for our lives, just our, our generation, the times in which we live. I, I think there are just a number of things. Maybe it's just me, but for me, it's incredibly relevant. Uh, there's a lot of application in this chapter, a lot of practical Christian living that we're going to touch on uh, this evening. So I'm praying that God would meet us in that and uh, that He would impact each of us. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, open us here and join with me there in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the will of God. This opening section, we pick it up on a therefore. That's the first word in our chapter. And if we go back to the previous chapter, we understand what the context is. Uh, it's talking about in verse 18 of chapter 3, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So we're looking at his suffering. That's the context that we're seeing here. Now understand that this letter, this epistle of 1 Peter, it's being written by Peter to Christians who are suffering. They are in the midst of trial. They are in the midst of difficulty. They are being persecuted for their faith. They are being slandered. 
They are being ridiculed. They are being unjustly persecuted in their days simply because they believe in Jesus Christ. That's not a new thing. So Paul is writing to them and and addressing their suffering. And notice what he says there again. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. In other words, what he's telling them, that in your present situation, in your present suffering, have the mind of Christ. That same mind that Jesus had, that same mindset, that same way of thinking that Jesus had, embrace that. Embrace that. He goes on there, and he says, For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He's saying you need to arm yourselves with this same mind. Now, I like that term. He says you need to arm yourselves like a warrior, because we're in a battle, right? Are we not in a battle? We are in a battle. He says, arm yourselves, not with the weapons of of the flesh, not with guns and whatever else. That's not the kind of warfare. The weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but they're mighty through God. He's asking us to take on spiritual armor and spiritual weapons for this fight. And specifically, again, he's challenging us to have this same mind that we would live for the will of God and not live for the flesh. He says there in verse 3, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So really what this opening section is dealing with, it's dealing with our past. It's dealing with our lives before Christ. And he's saying what you need to do now, you need to cease from sin. You need to cease from sin. You need to have this same mind that Christ had. And you need to reckon your old life dead. That's kind of what we picture in baptism, by the way, or what the Lord pictures for us in baptism. You understand that? That when we go under the water, it's as if our old lives, all of those past deeds, all of that stuff that we used to live in and walk in, all of that it's buried. It's dead. We reckon it dead. It's no longer a part of our lives, and we're raised in newness of life in Jesus Christ. That's what baptism pictures, and that's what he's calling us to do. He says here, we've spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. Now, when he says Gentiles there, he's not talking about, I mean, most of us, we're Gentiles here, right? We're, we're not, not Jewish. We can't trace our roots back to Abraham in that sense. But he's talking about just people that are, are controlled by sin. And he's saying that you, you've spent enough of your time. Now, without a show of hands, can you relate to that? Can you look back and say, wow, yeah, I spent, <laughs> I spent a lot of my life. I spent a lot of my life pursuing things that don't benefit me at all. And what he's asking us to do is to reckon that past, our past, your past, to just reckon it as dead and buried and gone. And I guess the, the exhortation for tonight is don't allow your past now to control your present. Don't let your past, whatever that is, 
Don't let that control you in the here and now. Don't let that rob you in the here and now. And he gives us kind of a, an example of, of things that we can probably all relate to in, in one way or another. He says when we walked in lewdness or debauchery is the idea there. Lust, sexual sin, drunkenness, revelries. In other words, you, you lived to party. I mean, honestly, a lot of us, that, that was what we lived for, right? Live to party, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And that word there, abominable idolatries, that phrase really has the idea of uh, just unlawfulness, illicit activity, criminal activity. And some of us, we were on that path. But in Christ, we are new creatures, right? In Christ, we're, we're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So we have an incredible ability only in Christ to have a clean slate and a fresh start. Isn't that good news? I mean, isn't that good news? We, we read that list, all of that. We can reckon that stuff dead. That's a part of our past. It doesn't need to influence anymore. You have a clean slate in Jesus Christ. That's good news. But we need to be careful that we don't allow those things to creep into our present. Because let's be honest, here's how it works. We get saved and we're brand new. You become a partaker of the divine nature, right? But we still have this flesh, right? We still have this flesh about us that wants to have its own way. And so it's very easy that we could bring our old habits our old pastimes, and drag them along with us into the new life in Christ. And guys, that will hinder us. That will hinder you. And so what he's challenging us to do is to make sure that our past is dead and buried. Now, I, I recognize that we're, we have struggles, and we're going to have struggles. That's, that's just part of being human. But we also need to understand that we can live a victorious Christian life. We need to remember our past have been buried and that we can walk victoriously in Christ. Look with me at verse 4. He says, in regard to these, those activities, those pastimes that we used to walk in, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. So this is what the believers were experiencing there in this day. They had turned away from all this stuff. And their friends, their families, they didn't like it so much. And maybe you can relate. Maybe when you came to Christ and you began to to walk in, in the things of God, and you began to put away those things, you know, maybe your friends would honestly say, you know, I, I like the old you better. The old you is a lot more fun. You know, I had a lot more fun hanging out with you before you became religious, you know. So we have those connections. Maybe you have those connections. And again, those things can kind of hold us back. They can kind of draw us back into some of those old things, right? And so something we need to guard in our lives. We need to be careful that we don't allow those people to woo us back into our old patterns of behavior and such. Notice verses 5 and 6. It says, They will give an account. They will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. They are going to give an account. That's a powerful motivator. It really is. The reality, and we need to hear it as well. The reality is is that all of those people, all of those people that from our past, they are going to stand before God. Everyone is going to stand before God and give an account. Even believers are going to give an account before God, not to be judged for their sins. Thankfully, Jesus Christ has paid for those. So we're not going to stand before God and be judged for our sins because Jesus took that judgment. Nevertheless, we will stand and we will give an accounting. The Bible says of every idle word, every idle word, everything that has come out of our mouths, that's kind of a frightening thing. Even for us as believers, we know that our sins are washed away. But to stand before God and give an accounting of what we did in this life, to give an accounting of our time, of how we spent our time, of what we did for the kingdom, that's still kind of a terrifying thing if I can just be perfectly honest. But for those that don't know the Lord, they will give an account for their sins. And that's a terrifying thing. Think about it this way. Some of you maybe served in the military or, or, or maybe in some kind of a profession where, uh, or a situation where there would be inspections. Let me ask you something. Before uh, an inspection was, was made, if you knew that it was coming, what were you motivated to do? I mean, did it motivate you? If you knew your Uh, your classroom or your uniform or your barracks or your workplace, if you knew that there was going to be an inspection, that was probably a powerful motivator to get it cleaned up, right? Well, the same is true for our lives. The fact that we're going to stand before God ought to be a powerful motivator for us to clean up, right? To, To clean things up, to make sure that our lives are in order before Him. But it's not the best motivator. And I want to just talk about this for a moment because we can read this and see that we're going to give an account and think about people giving an account and, and such and think that the, the, the reason why we would do what we would do is because we're afraid of God, because we're afraid of standing before Him. We're afraid of giving an account before Him. And that's true, but it's not the highest motivation. Think about it this way. Do you serve God? Do you do what's right because you're afraid of getting caught and having the consequences? Or do you do what's right because you love Him? It's kind of a a deep question to really think through. I want to give it to you this way. It says in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. We can't say we love God if we don't obey Him. We just can't. If we love God, we'll keep His commandments. We'll do what He's asked us to to do. And that should be the highest motivation for our lives. That should be the highest motivation for godly living. Not because we're afraid. Not because we're afraid we're going to stand before Him. But because we love Him. Because we love Him. Because we want to please Him as our Heavenly Father. Well, 
I leave that with you just to ponder and, and to con- continue thinking on, but love, love of God is the highest motivation. Now, verse 6 there says, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. There is much debate over this verse. What does it mean? Who is it talking about? Who are these dead people that he's, he's talking about? Uh, and, and you know what? I'm not even going to dive into it. I just want us to understand this is why we need the gospel. This is why the gospel is needed in our lives, that we might live according to God in the Spirit. We need the gospel. Everyone needs the gospel. Our world is in desperate need of the gospel, and we are those that are uh, commissioned to bring that before them. So if I could kind of just sum up this first section, these first six verses, I would just say it this way, that if we are going to serve God and live a victorious life in the Spirit, we cannot allow our pasts, our past actions, our past behavior, our past lifestyles, we cannot allow those things to control us in the present, right? So this next section, we want to look at that. We want to look at what it means to serve God in our present day, in our present moment. So uh, pick it up with me there in verse 7. It says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayer. So go ahead and stop there for just a moment. I just want us to make sure that we see this. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. I find it interesting that Peter, writing almost 2,000 years ago, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said that the end is near. We read the same thing in uh, the letters of John, in 1 John. When he writes, dear children, it is the last hour. So, guys, if it was the last hour, hour then. If things were, were coming to an end back then, how much closer are we today? Guys, we are living in the last days, literally the last days. I don't know what that means. I, I don't know how long that means in, in God's sense of time and all of this. I just know that He tells us that the end of all things is at hand. If that's true, and obviously it is, how do we respond to that? How should we live our lives? If the end is upon us, even now, how should that impact our lives? How should that change how we live? Let me give you just a silly illustration. This is a silly one. Sports fans, anybody here sports fans? Maybe, Maybe one or two of you? Okay. So, if you're not, maybe this is going to go over your head or just fly on by, and that's okay. But think about it this way. If you are a sports fan, uh, I'm a football fan, okay? That's about the only actually, – actually, I don't watch sports much at all anymore, but that's beside the point. But think about it this way. In, in a game, the game starts off, and, and at the beginning of the game, the pace is very, very different to the end of the game, Right? At the beginning of the game, you know, the teams are kind of feeling each other out. A tackle is made, and they just kind of get up and get back to the huddle and, you know, whatever. But in the final moments of the game, especially a close game, everything changes, right? Because literally one second or a fraction of a second could literally mean the difference between winning and losing. 
You guys have seen this in sports. You've seen it as, as the clock is winding down. Every action, every action is going to come under scrutiny. The coaches are going to go back and review clock management. You guys have maybe heard that term. Uh, they are, are, are going to look at every, every single action and play to see if it was done correctly because the game hangs in the balance. In other words, the pace is completely different. There is a, there's a whole new caution to every throw, every, I mean, hopefully you can, you're with me there, hopefully. Guys, it's the same in our day. There's a seriousness about the time in which we live. We can't be carefree. We can't just be flipping about, uh, you know, you've seen that. You've seen that in a game when the clock is winding down and somebody's just flipping with the ball and you're like, do something with that. And again, if you're a sports fan, you know what I'm talking about. There's a seriousness that we ought to have. That's how we need to respond at the end of all things that, that is upon us. So this section lays out three very simple applications for us, three very simple applications. The first one there, notice with me in verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So the first application is that we need to be serious about prayer. Now, I could talk about this for a long time, but let me just ask. Is prayer a priority in your life? Are you serious about your prayer life? Guys, this is a tough one. This is a tough one for us. It's one of those things that we know as Christians, well, of course we should pray. We know that. Of course we should pray. But do we actually do it? It is hard to do. It's easy to talk about. Difficult to live out. So I'm just going to leave it there and just say that this is something that we need to be very intentional about. We need to be serious and watchful in our prayer lives. Notice with me verse 8. He says, And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So the first thing is, is we need to be serious about prayer The second thing is we need to be fervent in love. Fervent in love. And he gives us an application here of how we can live it out. Now, the first thing I want you to notice there, he doesn't just say love one another, but he says have a fervent love. He's not going to let us off the hook that easily, right? Can't just love uh, one another, but we've got to love one another fervently. Now, this word fervent is a very interesting word because it literally means to stretch out to stretch out. Let me ask you. The love that you have in your hearts, the love that you have for the body of Christ, is it compelling you and moving you to stretch out for your fellow believers? We talk about it often that love is not a a feeling. It's not an affection. It's not just having a, a deep admiration or affection for someone but it's an action. And it's an action of sacrificing and of stretching out. The idea here is pouring yourself out to serve someone else. And that's what he's calling us to. He says in these last days, in this this end times, that we need to make sure that we're willing to stretch out for one another. And then he gives us here 
an example of it. He says, uh, above all things, in other words, there's the priority, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, what does he mean by that? Obviously, we're not talking about someone who is just living in outright rebellion. That's not what we're talking about. He's, he's given us instructions on how we need to deal with those situations. But what he is saying is that we can rise above the petty differences that we have with one another. We can rise up above uh, those things that are, are difficult, little offenses that we sometimes have with, with one another. You see, the Christian faith, it's not an American thing only, right? There will be believers from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And so we're this big melting pot of people from every part of the, of, of the globe, right? Every nation. We come from different races. We have different ethnicities, different cultures, different uh, traditions, different habits, all of this kind of thing. Beyond that, we're all sinners. <laughs> and when you add that into the mix, we've got all of our quirks, right? Our idiosyncrasies. All of these things about us that sometimes rub people the wrong way. Now, nobody mentioned any names, right? But you have those people in your life that drive you nuts. Okay? You have those people that are difficult people, perhaps. And what Peter is telling us is that we can have fervent love for one another. A love that's willing to stretch out and overcome all of those petty things, all of those differences. That's what he's calling us to do. Notice he goes on and he says, Have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. So we can serve one another. And by the way, that, that term hospitable means uh, love of strangers. or In other words, taking in people that we don't necessarily even know within the body of Christ. Without grumbling. We can do that. We can rise above this. But how? And he tells us in Romans chapter 5, it says, Now hope does not disappoint because... The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The only way that we can do this, the only way that you can love without grumbling and stretch out and serve people who are difficult without grumbling, without complaining, is if God is doing it through you. If His Holy Spirit is at work in your life and He is pouring His love into you and through you, that's how we can serve and love God's people. So that's the second thing. The first thing is we need to be serious in prayer. We need to be fervent in love. And the third thing is, is we need to be diligent, diligent in serving. Notice it with me there. It says in verse 10, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are called to serve. I think of Jesus' words when he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give my life as a ransom for many. It's kind of an interesting thing. But if Jesus, who is our chief example, and we are trying to model our lives after Him, if Jesus says, I I came not to be served, but I came to serve, then that means that we also ought to follow in His footsteps and step out and serve one another. So if Jesus was not exempt from this, and if anybody should have been exempt, it would have been Christ, right? But He gave us the example that we are to be those who serve. And it just is kind of an odd thing because it almost seems like some believers, some Christians have the attitude that serving, that actually serving the body of Christ and serving other people, that it's kind of like extra credit. It's not really mandatory. It's not really necessary, but it's just something that, well, yeah, we should do that. But I want to say that, that God has given you a gift. That's what we just read. To each one... As each one has received a gift, verse 10, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We need to be diligent in serving. He gives us two examples. They're very broad, but he gives us two examples. He says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. So in other words, some of you, you might have a speaking gift. That your gift, the, the way that God is going to use you in the body of Christ is to speak. Now the The obvious application is for like a pastor or a teacher, right? But it's not limited to that. You might have the gift of encouragement or exhortation. You might be one who can just speak into people's lives. You're not going to stand behind a pulpit ever. You're maybe not going to teach in a Sunday school class or lead a Bible study or any of those things. But God has gifted you to speak into a life, to encourage them. And you notice what it says there? Speak the oracles of God. In other words, the Word of God. Don't give them your opinions. Give them the Word of God. But God is going to use some of you in that role. Now, we are, we're all called to speak at different times. We're all, all called to share our faith, etc. But the primary way, your primary gifting in the, in the body of Christ might be to speak. But there are others whose, whose gifting is to serve. It says, if anyone ministers, and that is, again, the the idea, if anyone serves, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. If you don't have a speaking gift, you have a serving gift, and that can just be a wide, wide range of things. Here's what I just want to encourage you, though. Whatever your gift is, use it. Employ it. Put it to work. Bless the body of Christ with it. I don't know what it is. Tonight we, we enjoyed a, a wonderful meal. Somebody put that together. Somebody planned that out. Somebody bought the ingredients and, and cooked the meal and served the meal. You know what? They served the body of Christ. Praise God. Maybe you have a gifting in some skill. Maybe you're a craftsman or something like that. You can use that to bless the body of Christ. Maybe you're uh, brilliant with technology or computers, and you can use those skills to bless the body of Christ. I don't know what your gift is, but whatever it is, you can use it to serve others and to bless the body of Christ. He says, if anyone does it, to do it with the ability which God supplies. In other words, don't do it in your own strength, but that which He's given you to do and that which He's put before you, do it. And here's the goal, that in all things God may be glorified 
Through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. We, we have the privilege of partnering with Him. He doesn't need us. But we have the, the huge blessing. We get to serve Him. We get to be co-laborers, in, in a sense, with the Lord. And that's a huge privilege. But the glory, it's all for Him. Our reward, our reward in this is seeing Him exalted. Seeing Him worshipped, that's the blessing for us. Now one day, yes, we'll stand before Him and, and rewards will be given, each, each according to His own works. The Bible tells us that. But that's not why we do it. We do it so that Jesus Christ will be exalted here in our midst. God gets the glory. So again, we're talking about our present lives. Three things. Pray. Pray with seriousness, carefully. Make sure it's intentional. Make sure you're doing it. Make sure that you're loving fervently, that you're stretching out to serve the body of Christ. And then make sure that you're serving diligently. Those are the things in our present. It's almost like a template for our lives. And almost like at the end of the day, we could ask ourselves that question Did I do that? Did I pray today? Did I serve somebody? Did I love people? Did I actually sacrifice to, to bless other people? It's almost like we can, can ask ourselves and evaluate how we're doing with the Lord with those three points. So we've talked about our past. We've talked about our present and what we ought to be doing. Let's look now quickly at the future. Notice with me verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Remember that these people that, that Peter is writing to, they are suffering. They are being persecuted unjustly. And they're about to come into even greater persecution. As he's writing this, Emperor uh, Nero in the Roman Empire is about to unleash a persecution on the, the believers. It's just incredible, incredible persecution. They are about to just enter into this fiery trial, to put it mildly. He says, don't think it's strange when that happens. Now, I think about this section, and I don't know about you, and, and I may be wrong, but I just feel like we are on the cusp of this. Maybe I'm wrong, and, and I, I hope so in one sense, but it just feels like it's ramping up. It certainly is in other parts of the world. Believers in other parts of the world, those who, that, that kind of watch over this thing tell us that the Christian persecution in our world today is in an incredible rise. Believers are being persecuted horribly for their faith in other nations. And for a long time in America, we were content with that almost, uh, just almost believing that, well, yes, it's going to happen out there, but it's not going to, to happen to us. And I'm not sure that that's true. I think of this verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. It says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's given to us as a promise, and it's not one of those promises that we like to embrace or that we like to claim, you know, name it and claim it. I'm claiming this one. 
No, it's one that we would like for somebody else, I, I suppose, in, in some ways. But, but here's what I want to say about this. I want to admit something to you. And that is that I think I have seen this wrongly for my whole Christian life. Because for the, uh, as long as I've been a believer, I've hoped that somehow I would kind of escape this. That it really wouldn't come to me. That for the most part, that I would be able to, oh, oh sure, you know, people would make fun of me and, and that's, that's always happened, you know. Um, people say little things. But, but persecution, I mean, really being persecuted... It's not something that, that I've really ever experienced in a, in a great way, and I've kind of thought that maybe I would be exempt from it. But also, if I can again be honest, it's something that I've really thought about with my children. Because the thought of my kids being raised in, in a world where they are hated, I just don't like that thought at all. I just don't like that thought at all. And, and part of me wants to shield them from this and protect them from this and, and just insulate them from all of this stuff and, and almost to the point where I am overprotective or maybe you can kind of see where I'm going with this. But as I read this here, it gives a different perspective. Notice with me. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. In other words, we shouldn't view it as strange. We shouldn't view it as some isolated thing. But rejoice. Rejoice. That's a whole different way of looking at it. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, notice this, blessed are you. For the Spirit of glory and of, God, and of God rests upon you. On their part He is blasphemed, but on your part He is glorified. So there's a blessing that goes with this. There's a blessing with persecution that comes with persecution. When we suffer rightly for the cause of Christ, he says there's a blessing there. I just want to say, I, I, I think I've not really seen it that way before. Instead of something to avoid, it's something to embrace. Not that we go out looking for it or that we, that we enjoy it, but that we understand that we are identifying with Christ. Because isn't that exactly what Jesus did? I mean, he came from glory, he entered into this life, and he was reviled, and he was hated, and, and we understand all the terrible things that he endured, that we might be like him in his suffering, that we might share in his suffering. Here's a powerful verse in Acts chapter 5, one that I've read many, many times. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the apostles have been brought before the council, the Jews there, and and they've commanded them not to, to teach or to preach in the name of Jesus, not to share the name of Jesus. And basically they just say, you know, we can't really do that. We're going we're gonna to have to obey God rather than men. And it comes to the end of it after, they're, uh, after they suffer there. It says, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Do we rejoice in this? Think about this. 
that we would be counted worthy to suffer with Christ. Guys, there's a blessing in this that we've not yet really embraced, something we've not yet really uh, experienced or, or, or valued as Christians, and if I can say it this way, as American Christians. We kind of like the path of least resistance, and, but there's a blessing here. And my exhortation to you this evening is just to begin to think differently about it because I, f- I feel like it's coming, at least in some measure, whether it will be uh, the, the kind of thing that has been seen in other places where, where believers are literally stripped of their belongings and, and their homes repossessed and all that kind of stuff. We may think, well, that could never happen here. Well, give it another couple decades and, and we'll see. I, I don't know how long the Lord will tarry. But if he tarries a number of years, who knows what could come upon this nation? It could happen here. Again, just to see it differently, just to, again, have that mind of Christ to share in his sufferings. He goes on there in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. In other words, it does you no good. There's no benefit in suffering because of your foolish actions. <laughs> that doesn't get us anywhere. So, no glory in that. But verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So what this section begins to deal with now is that we are suffering, but God is using it to purify us. That judgment is beginning at the house of God, and God is going to chastise us, and He's going to allow things to come into our lives, into our world, things that are very uncomfortable. And the purpose of these things is to, is to refine us, is to change us. Think of this verse here in Psalms 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. There is something about God's judgment in our lives, God's chastising in our lives, His discipline. There's something about that that purifies us as an individual, and it also purifies the church. When persecution comes, it purifies the church, and the church actually begins to thrive in those times, in those seasons, because those who are unbelievers, they don't stick around for it. Who wants to be around for that? I mean, those that are unbelievers who have kind of just made their way in and are just kind of uh, spectators and observing, they don't want to have any part of that. And so they leave. They leave, the, uh, they leave the church, and they, they no longer name the name of Christ. But those of us who are, who are the real thing, those are the genuine believers, where else could we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Where else could we go? And so God says that there is blessing in that. And if God deals severely with His people, how much more severely will He deal with the ungodly? Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. kind of want to close with this thought. If you're suffering this evening, 
if you find yourself suffering. And, and it might be as a result of persecution. It might be as a result of something else. We have a faithful God, and we can commit our souls to Him. It was last Wednesday, Pastor Jim teaching out of Luke 23. He shared Jesus' words while He was on the cross. And His final words were, Father, I'll put it on the screen, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, He breathed His last. Into Your hands I commit my spirit. That's what He's telling us to do here. Look again at verse 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful creator. I want to end with this thought. God is faithful. God is faithful. You know what? There are things that have happened to you, to some of you, things that have happened in our fellowship. We think of the McKelvey family. And I have to tell you, it leaves me scratching my head. It leaves me scratching my head when I see people suffering, people that I love suffering, whether it's from illness or, or just the trials of life, accidents, tragedies. It leaves me scratching my head, and I, I, just, I don't understand. God's ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts, but here's what I know. God is faithful. God is faithful. In your suffering, in your difficulties, in your tragedies, commit your souls to Him as to a faithful Creator. God is a faithful Creator. He's a faithful Father. And though we don't understand right now, we don't understand why things happen the way they happen, why tragedies take place, why people experience incredible loss, why people have cancer. I mean, there's... I don't get it. And we, and we pray, and those prayers don't seem to be answered. God is faithful. And we can commit our souls to Him as a faithful creator. I want to just kind of close us with that thought, or I should say, kind of segue to the next thought. We're going to close tonight taking communion. Dave is going to come up here in just a moment. And here's what I just want to challenge you. Let's commit ourselves afresh to a faithful creator. I don't know what you're going through. I know that as a fellowship right now, we're just kind of in a hard place. We've got a number of people who are suffering in our, our fellowship. We've, we have some who incredible loss. We've talked about that and, and, and the things that, that are happening there that we're all feeling. But tonight, we want to identify with, with Christ. We want to come before Him and just commit our souls again to Him and just say, we remember your suffering, Lord. We remember you. We, we remember what you did for us. And we want to commit our souls to you. So here's how this is going to work. In just a moment, Dave is going to come up and he's going to lead in a couple worship songs. And they're going to come and I'm going to pray. They'll, they'll bring the, uh, the elements out. We'll have a, a tray of the bread and the juice up front. We've got one on a stool in the back, and I believe that they are making a way to get it to the overflow room or the fellowship room there. Dave's going to lead a couple songs, and at any point during that time, you can get up and, and you can get uh, the, the cup and, and the bread, and you can take that. You can take it up here. You can take it back to your seat. You can... But again, the point is this. 
The point is to be reminded of His faithfulness, of His goodness, of who He is, that He is a faithful Creator. So I'm going to start us in prayer, and, uh, and then Dave will lead us. And, and let's just close out our time just focusing on that, being reminded of His, his goodness. Father, we close our time, close our Bible study again, just considering our past, just those things that used to define us. Would you unshackle us from those things for good? Would you help us, Lord, not to bring them into our present? Lord, that we would live for you in this present day. That we would love fervently, Lord. We would pray with seriousness. We'd be serious about our prayer lives. And that we would serve you and your people diligently, Lord. And then, Lord, in in these last days, I don't know what's coming on the world, in in the world, Lord, and, and specifically in our nation, but Lord, I sense just the animosity rising up against you, against your people. I can hear the, the reviling words and, and the, the mockery and all of it, Lord, and the persecution that, that could be coming. Lord, you know. But Lord, I just want to ask that in the midst of that, whatever comes, that we would see it rightly, that we would embrace it for what it is, and then, Lord, that in our sorrow, in our distress, in our moments, Lord, of, of weakness, Oh, Lord, that you would help us to commit our lives to you, our souls to you, as a faithful creator. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.